Shortly after the fall of France, I remember a particularly portentous poster being displayed prominently. Wherever one looked and wherever one was, copies of this poster seemed to be everywhere. They were plastered on walls, billboards, notice boards and bulletin boards, in front of government and local government offices, police stations, fire stations, libraries, churches and the various ARP, stations and wardens posts. Of course, it was reprinted in the newspapers. The information this poster contained, along with the important instructions and advice, was indicative of the general feeling of urgency which prevailed. In truth, it is likely a no more important poster has ever been printed and promulgated. In trenchant terms, the poster listed the dos and don'ts concerning the upcoming invasion. An invasion which was, generally, expected any day, by the hour. The poster, and the millions of copies, started off by affirming the government's faith in the military. This, stirring and unbounded confidence in the armed forces, headed the hugely momentous document. After this, pronouncements concerning the upcoming bravery and fortitude that was expected of the civil population, followed. Finally, instructions as what should be done, or not done, were listed. Every person who could read, I suspect, read the poster more than once. The clear, precise, and forthright instructions became very well known. People, in the main, took them very seriously and they would discuss them in the streets, in the homes, and in the pubs. The document was, after all, of critical importance and we knew it. Whether the instructions would have had any real effect, upon the invaders, we will never know. The public's attitude, at the time, certainly gave the appearance of confidence. Looking at all we know today, I doubt the Germans would have been too badly disadvantaged, if, and it was a huge, if, they had managed to get a sizable army across the English Channel. Right up to recent times, this stretch of water was not named the English Channel, without good reason. The British people had confidence in the Channel's defensive characteristics, in spite of the recent experience of the Maginot Line. These posters, I recall, gave specific instructions to civilians. Basically, these instructions were designed to prevent any assistance, deliberate or accidental, being given to the invaders. Such things as bicycles, food, maps, petrol, amongst other things, were to be hidden. People were instructed, to stay put. They were not to clog the roads, as had recently happened in Europe. Roads were to be kept free for the military to use. People were expected to know their local officials, so they wouldn't be hoodwinked into following fallacious instructions. Because of the traitorous behavior of people in France, Norway, and Holland, the fear of fifth columnists was almost of paranoiac proportions. Vidkun Quisling gave his country, Norway, to Germany, and his name, to the English language, to describe abject and profound perfidy. The ordinary civilian was told, to keep watch for any odd behavior. If odd behavior was noted, it was to be reported to a person in authority such as police officer, air raid warden, or military officer. Another thing, I remember clearly. People were instructed, in unambiguous terms, to think of their country before themselves. If nothing else this admonition brought home, to those, who read it, the severity and importance of the document as a whole. It was a very sobering document and it was looked upon, as such, by those I was in contact with. Everyone pretended to make light of the situation. There was, in truth, little else that anyone could do. Another point, and a good point under the circumstances, was that this uncompromising poster gave the populace something to focus on. At last, people thought, comma something is happening and I can be part of it. Since September 1939, most of the population had felt excluded and extraneous, to the requirements of the war. Generally speaking, and in complete ignorance of what total war might bring, people wanted to be part of it. Strange as it might sound, the waiting had been found most frustrating. 
the period from September 1939 to June 1940, had been rather similar to awaiting a very serious and risky operation. People just wanted, to go to the hospital and get it over with. The poster provided this sense of being involved and important to Britain's war effort. Even to a child, the new feeling was evident. The wait was, finally, over. People got into the way of expecting the Germans to arrive at any minute. How they would come, where they would come, how many would come, were questions that were on everyone's lips. One thing appeared certain, they would come. Those, living inland, thought of the German paratroopers. These troops we had seen, in newsreels and newspaper photographs. We had been told that they had been used extensively, and with telling effect, in Poland, Holland, and Denmark. Those closer to the shores of the land must have thought about a seaborne invasion, understandably. This latter means of invading, however, paled by comparison to the strong belief in the airborne method. Mainly, this was due to the fervent faith the public had in the nation's ability to command the oceans and, with that, the English Channel. Being a seafaring nation, nearly everyone was aware of the problems which are inherent in conveying an army across large stretches of water, and, and being able to keep it supplied. Rumors were rife. One, of the most persistent, involved oil being spread on the sea and then burned. Some people were adamant, they knew someone who had seen this happen. Others claimed to have seen the charred bodies, of German troops, washed up on the beaches of Kent, or Sussex, or somewhere in East Anglia. These stories spread like a wildfire and, soon, everyone had heard one of the many versions. We all wanted to believe these tales. However, in the absence of any confirmation from the BBC News, we all tended to put these tall stories with the classic tale from World War I. This claimed, Russian troops had been seen at Waterloo Station, in London, with snow still on their boots. For a while, after the promulgation of this poster, people walked about with their eyes on the skies. For a while, most of the many instructions, given in the poster, were followed. People really tried to be responsible. However, as the days and weeks passed, the public's dedicated attention, to the directions, slowly waned. Still, nothing happened. The whole population was on tenor hooks. I began to look forward to my summer holiday at home. In the absence of any real reason not to, it had been arranged that I would spend the summer halls at Hammersmith. Then, with sickening reality, things began to happen in quick succession. The air raids on Germany, by the Royal Air Force, RAF, were reported more frequently and these seemed to be effective. Regular reports, of RAF, raids on the channel ports in occupied Europe, gave hope to the citizens of Britain that the invasion might be smashed before it got underway. The targets of these raids were, we were told, invasion barges and transports. It seemed reasonable, from all the reports, that this action would, at least, stop the seaborne invasion, if not the airborne. As if to punctuate the fact that the airborne invasion was still a very real possibility, there were increasing reports of German Air Force, Luftwaffe, activity. Although a few, mainly coastal, towns were attacked, and civilian casualties were reported, the Germans appeared to be concentrating on shipping in the Channel and the North Sea. These attacks increased, throughout July, and a large number of aircraft, both hostile and friendly, were destroyed. The air there was heating up, but we felt that honor was about even, at that stage. Both sides were attacking the other, but the reported losses seemed, slightly, to favor the Royal Air Force, RAF. BBC News, in those days, was announced in a uniform, clearly enunciated and modulated tone. The tone, is still clear in my mind. It was to be repeated, throughout the war and, for a while, after that. Extremely rarely did a news announcer allow his emotions to get the better of him. Good, bad or indifferent, the news was invariably reported in an extremely well-modulated, calm voice. This was BBC policy and it was adhered to, strictly.
I could appreciate the reasons for having the BBC News read, in a voice that could engender people's trust. It was, in fact, of inestimable value. People began to discuss these announcers, along with their distinct and dispassionate diction. Nearly everyone heard in them, the voice of a wise and trusted, close family friend or relative. To me, they sounded like my favorite uncle. In the absence of publicity photographs, people were left to guess, as to the appearance of the face behind the voices. Shocks were in store for people when, finally, the BBC printed photographs. Initially, the government had not wanted the BBC to give any information that was not abundantly positive. Raids on British cities and towns, the Ministry of Information decided, were not suitable subjects for the population's knowledge. The BBC won the battle by pointing out, to the ministry officials, that the Germans knew very well where they had bombed and that basic news would not help the enemy one jot. It was also pointed out, to the dullards at the Ministry of Information, that German propaganda was broadcasting, and distorting, the news. This, the BBC argued, had to be countered. After this the form and style, of many news items, were consistent. The following are examples. They are indicative, of the type of report that was commonly heard in the middle of 1940. It was factual reporting, without detail. German air raids were reported, today. Towns on the south coast were attacked. Some damage and casualties occurred. The Luftwaffe, today, attacked Portsmouth. Although the port and shipping were thought to be the targets, some civilian casualties have been reported. The Air Ministry reports that in fighting over the channel, today, 25 enemy planes were shot down. RAF losses were 10 aircraft. Six of our pilots were rescued, by coastal forces. It was in the middle of 1940, that the BBC news announcers began to give their names. At first, keen to avoid a personality environment arising within the very anonymous broadcasting fraternity, the BBC resisted. Overlooking the obvious, that a voice can be mimicked, the suggestion was, nevertheless, implemented. John Snaga, Bruce Belfridge, Alvar Liddell, and Frank Phillips became household names, almost overnight. Over a year later, in answer to the allegation that the news readers' voices were too much alike, a man with a broad Yorkshire accent joined the team. Wilfred Pickles made an immediate impact. In the history of the BBC, Pickles' Yorkshire accent was, probably, the first time any announcement or news broadcast, had been heard in anything but an Oxbridge accent. Wilfred Pickles read the news, for a short while. The departure from tradition, was the subject of much debate. Pickles had many supporters throughout the country, but it didn't last. Apparently his own decision, Pickles left after a few months to return to broadcasting up north. He was to continue in the broadcasting business, in various conspicuous capacities, for very many years. One of the first things Wilfred Pickles did, became popular folklore, immediately. The stuffy BBC, of course, scripted everything and was adamant that nothing but scripted material was broadcast, understandably. Just prior to closing down for the night, which the BBC did at the time, Pickles had read the late-night news. Prior to the national anthem he said goodnight to the listeners, as was usual. Then, inimitably, he said comma and to all northerners, wherever you may be, good night. His northern accent ringing like a clarion call to ordinary people's inspirations. The fuss this caused, was unbelievable, but Pickles survived. It is a regrettable truth that some people, far less numerous today, but still not extinct, believe that people with accents were, somehow, inferior beings. Back to the middle of 1940. The air affair was getting quite hectic and the German activity was increasing. I didn't go home for the holidays. It wouldn't be right for me to suggest that I resented this decision of my mother's. I was a well-disciplined lad and knew my place. It is fair to say that I couldn't understand the reasons for this change of plan. 
Thinking about it now, I can see that it probably was a hard decision for my mother to make. There was, after all, no direct threat at the time. In addition, many children had returned home to London on a permanent basis already. Later I would understand, only too well, my mother's concerns and apprehensions. If I had been in her shoes, and if my two children had been involved in similar circumstances, I would have made the same decision. The circumstances of me being told, that I wasn't going home for the holidays, are clearly recalled today. My mother came down to High Wycombe, about 11am on a Sunday. I walked into the town centre to meet her off the Green Line coach. From the town hall we walked, along the main, London to Oxford, road, back toward London. Just outside the town proper, a large recreation ground was situated to the south of this road. It wasn't my local recreation ground, but it was a place I knew well and enjoyed visiting, usually. On the way, I vividly remember we stopped at a small dairy and were able to purchase a carton of milk. Later, this milk was consumed with jam sandwiches my mother had prepared. After this enjoyable picnic, we walked among the anti-glider poles, along the riverbank and, finally, back to a small playground. Here, I swung on the swings, rode on the roundabouts, slid down the slide and climbed the monkey bars. In between all this, my mother informed me of two things. First, she told me that there was a strong possibility that, soon, I would be having a new father. It seemed that my Aunt Phyllis' brother had returned, to the UK, from India. There, he had been a cavalryman, for many years. I was told, that Jack was a career soldier. He had joined the army, as a boy bugler, at the age of 16. Knowing my liking for army badges, my mother gave me a cap badge of the 16th-5th Lancers. This being, his regiment. I wouldn't be surprised, if more details weren't given. However, the import and the implications were, at best, hazy to me. This was 1940, not 1999. Children were far less worldly-wise, concerning divorce and remarriage. I do know, I felt no strong emotions at all. In that age, these things were taken in one stride. No great psycho-slash-babble preceded, or followed, divorce, or single mothers, or one-parent kids, or death, or any other of the many tribulations involved in life. I pass no judgment, on this. I am stating, the attitudes of the time. Completely overshadowing my mother's domestic news, I was told that instead of traveling home, for the holidays, I would be spending some time at an uncle's farm in Dorset. Pre-war, I had spent many summer holidays at this farm. Cousin Josephine was the most jovial, and the kindest, person anyone could meet, which made up for the rather autocratic manner of Uncle Harry. As the day progressed, I became well-adjusted to the change of plan. By the time my mother left, on a late afternoon coach, her son was well-adjusted to the proposed arrangements. He was, if nothing else, adaptable. Meantime, the air war became more intense and involved. Not many days went by, without the Luftwaffe seeming to be front and center in the day's events. Reports of losses still seemed to favor the RAF, but we had been told the Germans had vast reserves. More towns and cities were bombed and it was during this period that I saw my first German aircraft. One afternoon, either on a weekend or after the schools had closed for the summer holiday, my friends and I were playing on some open ground. An alert was in progress. Alerts were fairly common at that stage, but nothing untoward was seen, or heard, usually. This time, aircraft were heard. As was usual, we looked skywards. The shape of the aircraft, was decidedly different to anything I had seen before. The sound, too, was unlike the British planes we knew quite well. Clearly, they were not British planes. One of our number, more confident in his aircraft recognition than the others, laconically said they're German. No one argued. By today's standards, the planes were not flying very high. 
Maybe, thinking about it now, they were between 10,000 and 15,000 feet. Too high, though, for the German insignia to be recognized, not that we had any doubts, on the matter. We did, probably, what any other youngster would have done. We just stared, in almost mesmerized fascination. I'm certain we would have messed our pants, if any hostile action had taken place, or even been threatened. But, these planes just droned on, traveling overhead in a northwesterly direction. It was a small formation of, maybe, 12 or 16 aircraft. I recall no strong emotions, at the time. The fear and loathing that, later, would be automatically felt, wasn't yet programmed into me by experience. The war, after all, was still very young. Although at this time, mid-1940, people were prone to complain about shortages, sometimes dire shortages, very little was heard about the terrible losses at seas. It was mentioned, but in a secondary manner. Because of the nature of the battle and the importance of the outcome, little information was made public. In only the barest details, all too often, were we told of the terrifying ordeals suffered by merchant seamen and the relentless battle by the Royal Navy, aided, greatly, by the Canadian Navy, to protect the merchant ships. The problem was the battle was never-ending and that it changed so little from day to day. News of individual ships could rarely be given and, in the belief, hope, the Germans didn't know the full truth, details of actual losses were closely guarded secrets. In truth, the battle was being lost, in spite of unremitting efforts and outstanding gallantry. If the losses continued, Britain couldn't survive. In the first 11 months of the war, nearly 2 million tons of shipping went to the bottom of the ocean. Losses like these couldn't be sustained, without appalling consequences. Fortunately, with improved tactics, better equipment and the loan of old destroyers from the Americans, the U-boat menace was gradually lessened. Eventually, after over 50 months of unremitting hardship and danger, the battle was won. For a long time, however, the loss of men and material was grievous. Many seamen, in warships and merchant ships, had more than one ship sunk from under their feet, during the war. Some sailed knowing that a small spark, in the wrong place, would destroy their ship in an instant. The crews, of petrol and oil tankers, led a particularly hazardous life. Even if these men survived the initial blast, death in the water, by way of suffocating in the oil, or burning in the flames, was virtually assured. After the war, when the facts became better known, most of the population should have felt deeply ashamed that we had griped about shortages of this and that. Because this was a continuing saga throughout the war, and because to keep referring to the matter is, perhaps, annoying to the reader, let us try to close this matter with just a couple of facts. At war's end in 1945, 29,180 merchant seamen had died aboard British flagged ships and 4,700 of these ships had been sunk. Hash. The late summer of 1940 saw me endorse it, at the small and delightful village of Child Oakford. I had been a regular summer visitor, always staying at my uncle Harry's farm. Although it has never concerned me, greatly, I have got around to thinking about this matter. I suspect it provided an admirable solution, to a perennial problem. The problem, my mother had, of what to do with me during the long summer holidays. Much of my life I had been away from home, for one reason or another. Because of this, the fact my mother worked was seldom a problem it only became somewhat of a problem, during the long summer holidays. My gran was quite capable of looking after me, of course, and I adored her. However she, too, had a busy life with her large house and many lodgers to look after. I think, all things considered, a few weeks at Oakford provided a most suitable answer. Life on the Watts farm, in those days, was an experience I enjoyed. It was, also, something I looked forward to, very much. As I had got older, my ability, to give meaningful assistance, had increased greatly. 
Like so many things in life, expert tuition and plenty of practice makes a person quite proficient. I'm not, by any stretch of the imagination, implying that I was able to do either the extremely heavy, or the very skilled, work. However, in what is mainly manual labor, there are many jobs that can be done by a very willing, fit, well-built and fairly strong, lad. So much of the life in those days, in Dorset generally and at Oakford specifically, has disappeared today, completely. Even the countryside, itself, is greatly different. Fields are larger, some hedges have disappeared, open country is built upon, lanes have become roads and roads have become great ribbons, of asphalt and concrete, stretching to the horizon. Many of the ancient time-honored, traditional ways of life, that made country living so romanticized, are gone. I am aware that many of these ways were not missed, by the country people themselves. Be that as it might be, many of the lost ways were, nevertheless, truly delightful. Not least, the countryside itself. Sorry, I digress. Joe would meet me, at Shillingstone Station, driving a pony in the milk trap. The station yard, small as it was, was an important feature of the locality. Of course, the omnipresent coal stacks were there, but the large wood-built feed mill stood preeminent. This facility, extant 1994, provided storage for the surrounding area's requirements of animal feed, crop seed and soil additives. Most of the stock in the feed mill came by rail, before the railway became only a memory. Joe did own a car, a Ford 8, but this car had not been used much, even pre-war. In 1940 it, like millions of other vehicles, was laid up for the duration. Horse-drawn transport was customary and had been so for centuries. The lack of a car, proved no great disadvantage. The reverse, however, would have been catastrophic. After the horrendous winter of 1939-40, I remember only good weather at Oakford during the summer of 1940. But, I was only a youth. Joe made me most welcome and, throughout my stay, I was never far from her side the entire waking day. I was already used to the daily routine and the various jobs that were done at that time of the year. Each day started the same way, at 5.30 a.m., dashed by getting the milking equipment loaded into the milk cart, and the horse, bridled and harnessed, hitched to the shafts of the vehicle. At nine years of age, I was able to do most of this myself and I enjoyed the chore. The horse, named Jim, I recall, gave no problems. He was as docile and manageable, as most general service horses were in those days. Then, with Lou the Welsh collie trotting under the rear of the cart, we would travel a mile to Shillingstone. Lou would leave his travelling spot under the cart, just before reaching my uncle's field. I would open the gate and, while the cart was driven just inside the field, Lou would round up the small herd of, about, twenty cows. By the time the milk churns had been placed properly and the milk strainer placed on top of one of them, Lou would have performed his task. The cows would be grouped together close at hand. Then, Joe, Uncle Harry and Reg, the farmhand, would each take a small, three-legged stool and a large stainless steel bucket from the cart and, then, go to milk the cows. The milkers knew each cow and followed a set pattern every day. As each cow was milked, the milk bucket would be emptied into a churn through a special strainer. This strainer prevented the normal accumulation of flies, grass and hair, and anything else, from polluting the milk in the churn. It seems to me that, after thoughtful consideration, each cow took between 5 and 10 minutes to milk and each cow gave about 1.5 gallons of milk per milking. I, truly, can't remember the figures precisely, but the given figures are not far removed from the truth. My job, during this phase, was to change the strainer to an empty churn when a churn was full. Certainly, this wasn't too strenuous. The horse, meantime, was content to graze and seldom moved, more than a few feet, from where he had been parked. At the conclusion of this, we would return to the farm. 
Lou would, again, detach himself from the workforce before arrival and round up the cows that grazed the home field. For some reason, the cattle in the home field were usually waiting, by the gate for Lou to arrive. It was, only, the occasional straggler the dog had to worry over, these cattle would walk into the ancient barn and wait, without human guidance, to be tethered to their respective stall. Each cow knew where to stand and patiently waited to be attended to. In front of the cows, in a trough, was placed cattle cake. This, I believe, was a form of cattle tonic and I think linseed oil was a big constituent. While two of the milkers attended to the milking in the barn, the other would drive Jim in the milk cart down an adjacent lane. I would always go, on this trip to the milk cooler. In later years, I would do the job, myself, by using a small stream, a very efficient cooler had been formed. The stream had been dug out, to a depth of, about, three feet and for a distance of, about, eight feet. To aid the whole process, of depositing and retrieving full milk churns, wooden platforms had been built on each side. An efficient roof completed the structure. Milk churns, filled during the previous evening's milking, were placed in this cooler every evening, except when the weather precluded the necessity. These churns were retrieved, in the morning. Rustic, it was, but it was 100% effective. It was normal practice, at the majority of dairy farms. When the barn milking was finished the churns, used for both the previous evenings and that morning's milking, were rolled onto a brick and stone platform at the end of the barn and beside the road. At this stage, I was proud that I could roll one full churn quite adeptly. Station staff and dairy workers could, often, roll two. I contented myself with the knowledge that I could, at least, roll two empty churns. Such conceit, in one so young, later, and with clockwork precision, a milk lorry would arrive to take the churns, along with those from all the neighboring farms, to the local dairy. The dairy would pasteurize the milk, bottle it and, then, send it on its way, invariably by rail, to the consumers. With only small differences, this procedure was repeated in thousands of small farms the length and breadth of the country. Milking, night and morning, took place every day of the year. This much, at least, hasn't changed. We always fed fresh milk, to the multitude of farm cats which assembled in the barn. Some of the cats enjoyed, having the cow's teat squirted directly at them. Sadly, mechanical milking has eliminated this quaint habit. Then, with Lou back resting in the drive shed, we would carry the milk buckets and the strainer to the adjacent thatched farm cottage, for washing. Naturally, the farm's daily requirement for milk would be saved from the milking. I would pour this, into a large two-quart jug. This jug would then be placed, with a lace-like cloth cover over it, in the cool buttery. The buttery was a large, tiled room in which was kept all perishable foods, the year's stock of homemade cider, in barrels, and the butter-making churn. All the butter used by the Watts family was made on the premises, of course. When I was staying there, churning it was my job. Margarine was unknown and homemade butter was commonly used for much of the baking. Again, this butter-making was normal practice in a host of farms, at the time. The full rich taste, of homemade butter, has to be experienced. As long as I live, I will never forget the typical Oakford breakfast. Shortages, that many people were enduring at the time, were clearly unknown on the farm. I don't think their eating habits had changed one jot, since pre-war days, with the possible exception of sugar and sweets. The breakfast table groaned, under its load of grilled-slash-fried bacon, eggs, sausages, bread, tomatoes and potatoes. There was more than enough for everyone, even for me. Then, in addition, there was a mound of toast and plenty of marmalade. A huge teapot and a large hot water jug, the former covered by a cozy, provided an endless supply of strong tea. Only the tea, sugar, and the marmalade, were not home produced. I hadn't seen anything like the meal, 
since being at the farm previously. The huge difference, between the laden tables of Laurel Farm and the meal tables I have become accustomed to, was beyond description. Clearly, there was no shortage of food, at Laurel Farm. It was, perhaps, surprising that a feeling of guilt didn't affect me. Looking back on that visit, I can think of only one piece of equipment that didn't require a horse or a man to power-slash-drive it. That was a large, mobile steam engine which traveled between the various farms as, and when, necessary. This engine, called a traction engine at the time, was similar to those seen, in those days, working on the roads. Mainly they were used, with huge heavy rollers, to flatten and spread the tarmacadam surface after construction, or repair, had taken place. They were, also, used, as a stationary source of power, to run threshing machines and, also, power a belt elevator. A belt elevator helped, with the building of hay and straw ricks, as well as conveying stuff to the barn loft. Thatched ricks, of straw and or hay, were seen in every farmyard. The stacking of these ricks was an art, although people such as me could help, greatly, under supervision. Thatching them, was a skilled job. Thatchers were much in demand, being required for these ubiquitous ricks, as well as most of the local homes. At the time of my visit in 1940, horses powered the equipment used in all the local fields. There were no tractors, in spite of their exiguous existence elsewhere. Although, obviously, horses came in all shapes and sizes, there were two main types. The large cart horse, and the lighter, smaller general purposes horse. Shire, Suffolk Punch and Clydesdale, were the three major breeds of cart horses. These horses were descendants of the huge, magnificent beasts that carried knights in armor across the battlefields. Powerful and full of stamina, these horses were used for the field work and all heavy draft work. On the farm, this could be hauling heavy loads of hay, wheat, and other field produce. They were also used, to power the multitudinous machinery used to cultivate the fields, improve the yield, and tend to or harvest the crops. Lighter, smaller horses, cobs and ponies some were termed, were used for carts, traps and general day-to-day -day work, while special hunters were used for sport or, just, riding for pleasure. Often, a job was to fetch the horses from the fields, occasionally, if they felt disinclined to be caught, no easy task, or the stable, and prepare them for their work. I would, also, unharness them and take them back to their field at night. Some of the large cart horses could be ridden, bareback, but some couldn't. Another chore that I enjoyed while at Oakford, was taking one, or other, of the horses to the blacksmith. The smithy was only some mere 200 yards away, from the farm. It might as well have been in the enchanted forest, for it was magical place to me. I can still see the blacksmith, shirtless, but with his thick leather apron around his chest and middle, sweating over his labors. His arms were as thick as tree trunks. I never tired of watching this man work. The ease with which he manhandled the horses, amazed me. Not, I hasten to add, that the horses were usually anything but docile, but some tended to be a little playfully obstinate. The village smith was a friendly man and he wasn't above talking to me and discussing the war. He had served in France during the First World War and the stories, he told, enthralled me. He was one, of the many village characters. The smithy was a cornucopia of metal, mess, muddle and muck. Wrought ironwork was all over the place inside, besides hanging and leaning against the walls outside, in the lane. Also, outside, were various pieces of farm equipment that were awaiting repair. Horseshoes, by the thousand, littered the walls. Over everything, in the smoke-filled interior of the smithy, lay the dust, grime and dirt of many ages. The actual forge, itself, was a place of wonder. It could look so docile, purposeless and innocuous but, in an instant, 
the smith could cause it to become a raging, roaring, incandescent white-hot heat with a few pumps on the bellows that controlled the flame. The smell of burning hoof, as the blacksmith fitted the new red-hot shoes, was uniquely pungent. Of all animals, I find the horse to be the most engaging. They are, truly, magnificent beasts. While Uncle Harry and, of course, Joe treated their animals well, many farmers and tradesmen didn't. Many were taken very much for granted, but worse, some were abused horribly. This is a sad, terrible side to the good old days. In my experience, if some owners had taken care of their horses, as well as they care for their tractors today, many horses would have had a more humane existence. Reg, the farm laborer, was responsible for the farm's bull. Most farms had their own bull, which was used for breeding purposes. Artificial insemination was unheard of, for normal farmers in the 1930s. Reg treated his bull royally and the two were inseparable. I was frightened of this bull, no doubt influenced by bad publicity, although I often accompanied Reg when he took his charge on a regular walk to exercise it. Normally, of course, the bull was confined to a shed, for long periods of the year. Timorously, I sometimes held the walking pole which, as the name perhaps suggests, was attached to the permanent ring in the nose of the bull, while it was being exercised. It was a magnificent beast. Fortunately, and probably due to the manner of his care, he was a docile animal but, still, one I wouldn't have wanted to tangle with. Manual grass cutting, with scythes and sickles, was a regular chore. Again, Reg was an artist. I spent many hours, watching him perform his skills. I learned to use a sickle quite effectively, but I never fully grasped the intricacies of the scythe, a most awkward instrument. Although usually performed after my summer holidays, a particular skill deserves mention as one that has not survived. Joe explained the whys and wherefores, of this traditional and functional ability. Again, Reg was a master at it. The work, which was clear for all to see and judge, was called hedging and ditching. It was an annual, autumn job. In those days, more than today, all fields were edged with a hedge and a drainage ditch. A thick hedge was, traditionally, grown on a two to a three foot high bank above the ditch which was, itself, often about two feet deep. The earth, removed from the ditch, had provided the bank, of course. Most hedges had ditches, on both sides of them. As demarcation line solely, this arrangement was clearly unnecessary. However, the main reason for the hedges and ditches was to provide a substantial obstruction and effectively prevent cattle, and other livestock, from straying. Each autumn, Reg would repair the ditches and, also, trim and entwine the branches of the hedge. Post and wire fences, such are common today, were very rare across most of the land in the 1930s. After breakfast, my jobs included feeding and watering the pigs, horses, chickens, and, sometimes, geese and turkeys. This feeding and watering took place, usually, twice a day. After doing these small jobs, I would join the others wherever they might be working. Joe and the two men would, often, be in one of the various fields. Harry Watts grew some wheat each year and, of course, harvested hay from his other fields. The hay and the straw were used for feed and bedding, respectively. Both crops required plenty of manual labor, after the actual cutting. In this matter, I don't recall that year especially. As a rule, I would do whatever job was required, to help. I would help in the fields, sometimes for a full day. I also assisted by cleaning out the stables, cow barns and pigsties. Grooming the various horses properly, was a fairly skilled job, but I often brushed them and combed their tails and manies. Of all the work, I enjoyed the field work most of all. This, like everything else to do with the farm, was labor-intensive. Hay, after cutting, had to be raked and turned, to facilitate drying. Wheat, after harvesting, had to be piled in stooks, 
to facilitate ripening. A stuk being, usually, five bundles of grain, so piled. Then, when ready, both hay and wheat would have to be loaded, by hand onto wagons, and transported back to the farm buildings. Here, the wheat would be threshed. The grain would be bagged and, while the threshing was progressing, the straw would be ricketed. The hay would, also, be ricketed in the rickyard. If I was ever useful, it was with a hay fork or a rake. I must have thrown many, many tons of hay and straw about, in my life. I'm certain that summer of 1940 was no different. It was while working in the fields, maybe in 1940, no later, I was introduced to the taste of cider real cider. A stone jar or jug of this pleasant, if powerful, drink was always taken to the fields in the summer. Then, at lunchtime, while eating a prepared lunch such as hunks of homemade bread, butter and cheese, the cider would be drunk from a small horn. I was permitted, only a small quantity. I remember the incident, as though it were only yesterday, and my liking, for scrumpy, has remained strong. Another thing, in particular, is clear in my memory of 1940. I thought it, ironic. While I was staying at Laurel Farm, the Germans raided the Dorset coastal towns. Although they were a considerable distance from my location, those bombs, at Weymouth and Portland, were the closest that had, up to that time, fallen near me. While I was away, the air war had not slackened in intensity. In fact, it appeared to be getting more hectic as the days went by. Little did I know, how hectic, 